Um, so in, um, in 1776, a guy called Thomas Jefferson, many of you will have heard of him, uh, Thomas Jefferson was asked to sit down and um, sort of compose a document that would become the United States Declaration of Independence. Um, and, and included in that document uh, were, were these rather well-known words that, that Jefferson penned. We, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, I guess if, if, uh, if you're a U.S. citizen, um, those words you would recognize instantly. Actually, I think lots of them, lots of us probably know those words as well, if for no other reason than maybe we were taught them in a history lesson or, or something like that. And they're at least part of the reason why much of the Western world today considers the subject of, of rights, our rights, to be extremely important. And, and something that we're actually quite keen to, to talk about. We, we've said before, haven't we, in this series, when, when, when society speaks about the subject of rights, it generally speaks about the exercising of them uh, or the defending of them uh, or, or, or of people standing on their rights and, and so on. But actually, when the Bible talks about the subject of rights, it's usually in the context of giving them up. So, uh, so Jesus comes along in the Gospels, and his example is of giving up his rights, isn't it? Putting us before himself, even to the point of him dying in our place on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin on himself. And, and what we saw last week is that the Apostle Paul is very much following in Christ's example, isn't he? He takes pretty much half of chapter 9, doesn't he, to lay out his rights as an apostle, as a minister of the gospel, you know, to be materially supported as he ministers uh, among the Corinthians, all in order to say that he's given up those rights for the sake of the gospel. He'd, he'd rather lay aside this right than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel, he says. And, and then he goes on to show in the rest of that chapter that it's not just this right that he lays aside, but, but actually his whole life, his whole ministry is one of giving up his, his, his rights and freedoms and preferences for the sake of the gospel. You know, if there's, if there's any way, you know, without compromising the gospel or, or without abandoning the, the non-negotiables of, of doctrine or behavior, if there's any way that he can accommodate himself to those that he's seeking to reach, he will do so. He'll, he'll become all things to all men that by all means are, he might save some. That's what gospel-centered living looks like. In, in this area of, of rights and, and freedoms. It's about being ready to give them up, not simply insisting on, on exercising them. This is what Jesus did, and it's the principle that Paul was laying out in, in the first half of chapter 8, if you remember, and then working through in a series of examples, a series of situations where the Christian should be ready to, to give up his, his rights and his freedoms. Give them up for the sake of other Christians who, who may stumble because of your insistence upon exercising them. That's the, the last half of chapter 8. Uh, give them up for the sake of the gospel. And he uses himself as an example of that in chapter 9. And, and now, here in chapter 10, his, his last example is a call to be ready to give up your gospel rights and freedoms for the sake of your spiritual health. That's his point in this chapter. And, and he makes the point, you might have noticed this, he makes the point by coming back to their question 
to him about eating food sacrificed to idols. Do you, do you remember that in, in chapter 8? That the question was basically, you know, is it okay for Christians to eat the meat that has come from being sacrificed to idols in the pagan temples? And, and that was an important question for them because uh, actually a high proportion of the city's meat started out as being sacrificed in, in one of the temples. It was then served in the temple food halls um, uh, where a lot of the networking and the social life of the city took place. And then, and then anything not eaten there would end up in the marketplaces. So it's quite difficult not to eat it unless you kind of fancy being a vegetarian. Of course, we saw in chapter 8 that some people in the church, a kind of a more libertarian group within the church, they thought it was fine to eat the meat because the gods that it was offered to weren't really gods at all, and so the, the meat was just meat. And, and actually, Paul agrees. He agrees with their knowledge in that area, but he says they need to act on the basis of love, not simply on the basis of, of knowledge. And that may mean giving up what they're free to do if their eating of it causes a brother to stumble. But now here in chapter 10, he's returning to the issue of food sacrificed to idols because there seems to be a deeper issue than merely the eating of such food. Because what appears to be going on, if you kind of read between the lines of chapter 10, it is that some of this more libertarian uh, uh, group of Christians are not wanting simply to exercise their right to eat such food, but they actually want to go into the temples themselves and effectively play a full part in the temple activities. So the way, the way it would work um, was that you know, each of these pagan gods had their own little temple and a statue of the god in it. And, and they, you would invite some people to come and offer a sacrifice of meat to your pagan god with you. Uh, and then you take it around the back of the temple into the, 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 the kind of the food hall in the temple. And, and then you'd have a bit of a barbecue, uh, I guess, with the meat in honor of the pagan god. Uh, and of course, pagan religions in those days, they were big on uh, including lots of sexual promiscuity um, in those evenings as well. There were temple prostitutes, effectively. Um, and, and so to, to go and attend those kind of events were a sort of a toxic mix of pagan idolatry and sexual promiscuity. And, and of course, for many of the Christians in Corinth, this was their past. So this was a normal part of Corinthian life. And, and it seems as though these, these more libertarian among them, they've concluded they're still free to go to those kind of events. They've, they've kind of rationalized it. They've, they've convinced themselves that their freedom in Christ allows them to, to go and do that and that they're, they're kind of strong and, and mature enough as Christians to, to be able to do so. And, and you can kind of see why they'd want to, can't you? This was all part of normal, the normal social life of, of a Corinthian. All their friends would be doing that. All the social gatherings would be like that. So, so to keep away from those things would be to distance yourself from, from your friends, from your family, from your work colleagues, and, and actually all the people that you might be eager to share Christ with. So you can kind of imagine that part of the reason they've justified their attendance at those kind of events is in order to maintain and, and build relationships for the gospel. You know, this is part of us being all things to all people, they would say. Well, Paul's got some pretty blunt, direct warnings to give them in this chapter because he considers them complacent and in great danger of falling. Have a look. You can see the first warning in, in verses 1 to 13. I think the warning here is, um, is kind of don't let history repeat itself, if you like, because you'll notice this is a warning from, from Old Testament history. 
So, so what he's doing in, in these verses, he's kind of drawing a comparison between the Corinthian Christians and the Old Testament people of Israel. And, and the concern in the comparison is that history doesn't repeat itself. Have, have a look at verse 1. Um, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So he's describing, kind of you might recognize the language there, he's describing a bit of the early history of Israel where God has miraculously led his people out of Egypt uh, under a pillar of cloud, if you remember, and and taken them through the Red Sea, something that which he describes, look in verse 2, as a kind of baptism into Moses. Interesting language, isn't it? Moses being, of course, the rescuer that God had appointed to deliver his people, a role in which, of course, he points forward to to Christ. Uh, Then, verse 3, God took them through the desert where they all ate the same spiritual food. That's an allusion to the manna in the desert, of course. And they all drank, verse 4, the same spiritual drink that came from the rock, verse 4. And again, those who know the story, uh, you'll see the allusion there to God's provision of water from the rock for his people in Exodus 17. But do you notice this kind of sacramental language going on there? Do you, do you notice that? So not only is, is coming under the cloud, passing through the sea, a kind of baptism, but he also talks about them you know, eating the manna, having the water in the desert, as eating and drinking spiritual food, and also a spiritual drink that comes from the rock, which is in fact Christ, verse 4. In other words, they were being kind of nourished on Christ as they go through the desert. It's a kind of Lord's Supper type metaphor going on there, isn't it? Pretty unusual language. But I wonder if you can see Paul's point. Because what he's saying is that these Israelites, they've had a kind of salvation experience, a rescue experience. They've they've been baptized into Moses, just like the Corinthians have been baptized into Christ. They've been nourished on Christ in the desert, just like the Corinthians as they take the communion meal. In other words, he's drawing a parallel here between Israel under the Old Covenant and the Corinthians as Christians under the New Covenant, do you see? Which makes verse 5 a real kick in the teeth, doesn't it? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You see, most of the people of Israel that God had delivered from Egypt and that had been, in a sense, baptized and nourished by Christ, just like the Corinthians, God had been so displeased with because of their disobedience that he had overthrown them in the wilderness. More literally, that means he scattered their bodies in the desert. In other words, he killed them off. It's very stark, isn't it? Israel had been baptized into Moses. They'd been nourished on Christ, but they still didn't make it to the promised land. They perished on the journey. And in the same way, the point is, the Corinthians should not rely on their baptism or their regular participation in the Lord's Supper. They too run the risk of not making it to the end of the Christian race, but perishing on the journey. You might kind of 
pick up the link there with the end of chapter 9 as well, running the race to gain the prize, not to be disqualified. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty blunt warning, isn't it? And, and you can see from verse 6, look, that Paul says this lesson from Israel's history is to be a warning to the Corinthians and friends to us as well. That yes, it's great to start the Christian life, but it's finishing that counts. If you Corinthians, if you think that you can flirt with idolatry and and sexual immorality in the temples and justify to yourselves that you're strong and mature Christians, it's okay for you to do that. Well, just remember Israel. Because yes, they all left Egypt. But if you remember, only two of those who left Egypt entered Canaan. And the rest? Well, their bones are scattered in the desert. In other words, Corinthians, do not think that your baptism, your regular communions will save you from God's judgment if your complacency plunges you headlong into disobedience. It just shows up the fact that your salvation, no matter what you think, was just not genuine and so it didn't last. So what's that going to mean for the Corinthians? Well, verse 6, it means... Do not desire evil as they did. In other words, don't follow the example of Israel. It's it's a warning, isn't it? That that the areas that the, the Corinthians are flirting with are actually exactly the same areas where where Israel Israel went wrong. He mentions them, look, in verses 7 to 10. Have a look. Firstly, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 7. That's a reference to the the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, if you remember. And the point is simply, God hated Israel's idolatry back then, and he hates your idolatry too. And it would have reminded them, I'm sure, that the golden calf incident ended in 3,000 deaths as God acted in judgment. So it says, be careful that your flirting with idolatry doesn't end in God's judgment too. God will not tolerate that kind of divided loyalty. He demands faithfulness from his people, not not duplicity. So read your Old Testaments. Learn from the example of Israel. Don't flirt with idolatry. Um, You can see the second area he mentions in verse 8, do not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. I think that's a reference to Numbers 26 in the Old Testament and and Israel's sexual immorality with the women of Moab, you might remember the story, which is also linked to their worshipping of idols. And and we've seen already, haven't we, in Corinth, pagan worship uh, in the temples um, uh, meant uh, uh, sexual misconduct as well, which which seriously affected the church there as well. And Paul had to address it in in chapters 5 and 6. So the warning again is, is, is look up Numbers 25. God didn't stand for sexual immorality then, and he won't stand for it now. God acted in terrible judgment on them. 23,000 of them killed in a single day, verse 8. So don't presume that he won't act in judgment on you. Um, The the third area he mentions in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, which is a reference to Numbers 21, where, where Israel complained so much about everything. Do you remember this? That they even said they wished God hadn't saved them at all and left them in Egypt. And, and it, it would appear that some of the Corinthians as well, were just, they were just hankering after their old pre-Christian days where they could eat in the temples, they could indulge in what they liked with whomever they liked. And again, the point is, remember Israel. 
God didn't stand for this then. He, he sent serpents as judgment on them to, for trying his patience, verse 9. And don't think God will stand for it now. He won't. And then the last area he mentions, look, is in verse 10. Uh, don't put Christ to the test, nor grumble, as some of them did. Which is probably a reference to several kind of instances. Uh, those who know the story will, will probably recognize some of them, uh, of, of people grumbling against the leadership of Moses. Do you remember that repeatedly? Numbers 11 and 14 and 16 record this, and God's judgment on their grumbling. And I think the Corinthians were grumbling about Paul in the same way because his teaching is kind of challenging their, their behavior. It's, it's exposing their, their complacency. And again, the, the point is God didn't stand for grumbling in Israel's day. And don't presume that he won't punish yours. Verse 11, these things happened to them as an example. You see, they were written down for our instruction. In other words, learn. Learn from Israel's example. Don't let history repeat itself with you. Do do, do you see what he's doing? These these Corinthians were so sure that they could flirt with all this without it hurting them. That they could justify it all on the basis of their knowledge that the idols weren't really real. And Paul is saying, no, you can't. To to play around with idolatry is to risk putting yourself under God's judgment. You're you're mistaken if you think that you can call yourself God's people and yet at the same time mess around with idolatry and sexual immorality that you can test God um, and and, and then grumble when, when others might question you. Oh, yeah, you, you might think of yourselves as mature, you, you Corinthians, as strong, as simply exercising your gospel freedoms. I'm just doing this so that I can keep relationships with my non-Christian friends. But if you're using your gospel rights and freedoms as simply an excuse for complacency so that you can flirt with desiring evil, well, you need to watch out that you're not heading for a big fall. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks he can stand take heed lest he fall. Do you see, it's, it's a warning. Yeah, don't presume yourself safe on the basis of your Christian activities, your baptism, your communion. Don't overestimate how strong or mature you are. Don't be deluded. Don't imagine that you won't fall into sin and so become complacent in, in how you exercise your freedoms. If, if that's how you're feeling, watch out. You're in grave danger of a big fall. Not, not a fall from salvation. That's not his point. His, it's a warning that a fall from holiness may lead you to knowing God's discipline rather than his blessing. So friends, the, hmm, the, the question begging here is, is if the danger for the Corinthians was slipping into sin through their complacency about temple idolatry, what is it for us? Like what's the equivalent of the pagan temple in our lives? In, in what area is it that I'm tempted to think that because I'm a Christian, I can live as I please and still be safe. That I can live as I please and not fall under his discipline. Well, he says, let anyone who thinks he can stand take heed lest he fall. But have a look at verse 13, because here we see that, that yes, we can easily be deluded, but we can also be delivered 
Do you see that? Verse, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you see? He, he's saying that temptation is inevitable. Even mature Christians are tempted. So don't be silly enough to think that you won't be. <laughs> but if you turn to God in your temptations, he is faithful. And he, he won't let us be tempted beyond our ability to endure it. Indeed, we can be confident that God will kind of never allow us, as it were, to be sort of shut in a room full of temptation with no exits. No, he'll provide a way out. He'll provide a way, a means of bearing up under temptation, not, not simply giving into it. God will do that because he's faithful. That's a massive comfort and encouragement for us, isn't it? But friends, we do not expect God to keep us from those temptations, even while we're complacently flirting with them. So God's, God's faithfulness to help us with temptation mustn't be our excuse to push the limits of, of our freedoms and, and see what we can get away with, thinking that we'll stand and not fall. No. We trust God to help us with this, and, and he will, but we also seek to keep ourselves from situations where we know that we may be likely to fail. So that's kind of the warning from history. Do you see? Don't let history repeat itself. Don't use your freedoms in Christ as an excuse to complacently flirt with sin, thus risking shipwreck of your spiritual health like Israel did. So that's warning number one. Warning number two, look, you'll see is, is in the rest of the passage, really, from verse 14 onwards. And, and, and the warning is this. It's kind of um, fellowship with Christ is exclusive. Okay, fellowship with Christ is exclusive. And, and what he's doing here is, is basically applying the warning from Israel's history by stressing that the Corinthians should keep away from participation in the temple rituals. Okay, verse 14, flee from idolatry. In other words, having been reminded of Israel's example, don't repeat history, learn from history, which means don't flirt with idolatry, run from idolatry. And then in, in verses 14 to 22, he, he, shows that, he shows that although chapter 9, verse 4 is right, you know, although an idol has no real existence, you know, and there's no God but one, so, so Christians are free to, to eat the, the food that's been offered to it. Although that's right, don't think that there isn't something spiritual at work when you eat and drink in association with an idol. In the same way as there is something spiritual at work when you eat and drink in association with Christ. Ha have a look at the comparison he makes in verse 16. Look, um, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Uh, and then consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants 
with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Can you see, can you see what he's doing? He's comparing the New Testament communion meal, the Lord's Supper, with the Old Testament altar sacrifices of Israel, verse 18, and then the pagan sacrifices in, in, the, in the Corinthian temple. And do you notice how often the word participation or participate comes up in those verses? That You might know the Greek word. It's, it's called koinonia. It means fellowship. It means partnership. It means sharing together. So, so Paul's saying that when you eat and drink together in those, those different religious contexts... There's a, there's a sharing together that's going on, right? There's a participation going on. You're, you're participating in something. There's fellowship taking place. Um, in the Old Testament, verse 18, as the people ate the food that had been offered to, to God, to Yahweh, that God's people were participating together. A fellowship was going on in the worship of God. And in the New Testament, verse 16, as Christians meet around the Lord's table, there's a sharing together. Participation is going, uh, going on in the body of Christ. So then what is it in an idol's temple? Verse 20. Well, Paul says it's a participation with demons. So, so it's not that these idols are real. They're not. He's made that point already. But just because the idols are non-existent, just because the meat is just meat, it doesn't mean that nothing spiritual is going on in those temples. Far from it. Pagan religion is not spiritually neutral, but rather the forces of evil lie behind it. That's his point. And so to participate in it is not a spiritually neutral activity, but it's an activity that the forces of evil lie behind. So Corinthians, verse 21 How can you even think of having fellowship with Christ around the communion table one day and having fellowship with demons in the pagan temple on another day? How can you consider having fellowship with anyone else but God? No, you've got to flee from that. Lest you provoke the Lord to jealousy, verse 22. Do you see the point? Fellowship with Christ, friends, is exclusive. Um, uh, I wonder if over the last couple of weeks you noticed a sort of a sort of a tension between chapter eight and chapter nine, because um, chapter eight seems to encourage me to be a bit more cautious with my freedoms, doesn't it? So that I don't cause a weaker brother to stumble. Remember that. Whereas chapter nine seems to encourage me to be all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. So, so, so what do I do when those two things collide? What do I do when taking into consideration the the needs of each leads me maybe in two different directions? Do do, do you see? For example, how can I, um, chapter 9, verse 21, how can I become as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law if I have to keep away from idols? Do do, do you see? If everyone else is eating food sacrificed to idols, but I can't, how how am I going to get a chance to share Christ with them? Do, Do you see the tension? I think these last few verses where he kind of draws together everything from from the last three chapters, I I think might help us. Look look at verse 23. All things are lawful. And you'll notice that's in speech marks. It's a quote. In fact, it's, it's it's a slogan of that sort of libertarian group in Corinth. They love to exercise their their gospel freedoms freely, as freely as they could. 
Uh, they, they've actually used the slogan before in chapter 6. And, and actually, Paul agrees. We, we've got great freedom as Christians, but just because I'm free to do something doesn't mean I should do something. More important than whether it's lawful, verse 23, is whether it's helpful. More important than whether it's lawful is whether it builds up. Which means that it's not just about what's good for me, verse 24, but what's good for others. And and that's the principle, actually, that he he laid out at the beginning of chapter 8, isn't it? Rights and freedoms are not given just so much to be exercised as, as to be given up. So what does that mean in the area of food sacrificed to idols? Well, it means, verse 25... Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, you're free. You're free to eat whatever you buy in the market. You're free to eat the same kind of food in someone's home as well. And you don't need to raise any questions of conscience as you do so, verse 27. In other words, you don't need to ask where the food has come from. It doesn't matter. It's not important. It's just meat. That The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, it's all from God, so just tuck in. But, verse 28, if someone says to you, huh, do you know this food's been sacrificed to idols? Then do not eat it. In other words, when there's no explicit connection made between the food that you're eating and the worship of an idol, you're free to eat it. It's just meat. But if someone raises that connection with you, then Paul says you should not eat it. And I I don't know about you, but my immediate question was, why? Why should that be the case? But just think about what these chapters have been saying. If you're a Christian then when it comes to exercising our our rights and freedoms, we have certain obligations, don't we? We we have an obligation to act for the good of other Christians so that we don't cause them to stumble. That's chapter 8. We have an obligation to act for for the good of non-Christians so that they they might not have obstacles put in the way of them being reached with the gospel. That's chapter 9. But actually, above both of those things, as Christians, we have an obligation to act in undivided loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, to worship only him. And and this is why, even if attending a temple feast wouldn't cause a brother to stumble, even if attending a temple feast might help in the process of being all things to all people and crossing cultural barriers and, and so on, Paul says you still should flee from it because you can't be in fellowship with Christ whilst you're in fellowship with demons. You can't link yourself with idol worship whilst claiming to worship Christ alone. Those two things are not compatible. And so, coming back to verse 28, whilst you're free to eat temple food, the moment that someone raises with you the history of that food and says, oh, did you know this meat has been sacrificed to an idol? Paul says, don't eat it. And this is not for your sake. You're you're free. But it's a freedom you give up verse 28, for the sake of the person who informed you, so that he or or she would, would see from you that to be a Christian is to be completely, uncompromisingly loyal to the uniqueness and the exclusivity of the one true God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Do you see, the issue of loyalty to Christ alone as the sole object of your worship is not raised just by having a meal with someone, you know, no matter where the food comes from. But the moment that your host says to you, oh, this has been sacrificed to an idol, don't you know? Well, that raises the issue, doesn't it? So, so the question is, how are you going to react? And Paul's point is that if you, if you carry on and eat it, your host is likely to think, well, you don't care about the worship of idols. You condone the worship of idols. You're ambivalent towards the worship of idols. So he says, if that's the case, don't eat it. But rather leave the food. So, so that we affirm to that person that it's Christ, it's him alone, who is the object of our loyalty and our worship. So whatever you do, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's the consideration that trumps all the others. Can I do this for the glory of God? So look, as we close close on these three chapters what's the framework here that Paul gives us that can help us with our decisions decisions about how we exercise our gospel rights and freedoms well well first first of all Paul affirms that we have many such freedoms and we should feel free to exercise them but but as we think about what's wise what's appropriate uh, uh, Christian behavior in in that area He's been saying that actually we should be more concerned about giving up our rights and freedoms rather than simply exercising them at any cost. And this means, chapter 8, be ready to give them up for the sake of other Christians so that we don't put a stumbling block in the way of a weaker brother or sister so that we build them up in the faith, not not destroy their faith. It also means, chapter 9, being ready to give them up for the sake of non-Christians, for the sake of the gospel, which means not letting matters of just cultural, personal preference become obstacles to the advance of the gospel, but but giving things up in order to win people for Christ. And then lastly, here in chapter 10, it means being ready to give them up for the sake of our spiritual health. So not, not using our rights and freedoms as an excuse for license to kind of push the limits of our freedoms in order to flirt with things that are idolatrous. Things that lead us away from the worship of the one true God and lead us to worship other things instead. And, and friends, it, that is not only relevant for Christians who have come to faith from another religious background, is it? You know, where, where to try and integrate the worship of other religious idols might be a temptation that we want to flirt with. It doesn't only apply there, does it? It applies to all of us who have come to faith from the secular culture that we live in as well. Because, of course, idolatry is alive and kicking in our secular culture, isn't it? And that's because an idol is basically anyone or anything that we put in place of the one true God in our hearts and our affections and our lives. So it can be our career. It can be our family. It can be our possessions. It can be our beauty or our youth or our health. It can be drink or sex or hobbies. It can be loads of other things as well. But when we turn even a good thing into a God thing, as as is often said, when it's those things that we live for, well, then we've become idolaters, 
And if that's what we're doing, the message here is we need to stop it now so that we don't risk making shipwreck of our spiritual health. So friends, in those, in those decision-making areas where the Bible gives us freedom, where our conscience gives us freedom, in, in those multiple areas where we're free to choose, let's be ready to ask ourselves before exercising those freedoms, let's be ready to ask ourselves, what will be the effect on other Christians? Because love is more important than knowledge. Chapter 8. What will be the effect of that decision on non-Christians? Because the gospel is more important than my rights. Chapter 9. What will be the effect of that decision on my spiritual health? Because that is more important than my gospel freedoms. Chapter 10. And friends, to, to think and to act and to make decisions in that way, giving up our rights and freedoms as, as, as uh, not, not merely exercising them, it might challenge us considerably. But friends, it is simply to follow the example of our Savior, isn't it? Who didn't cling to any of his rights, but gave them up to the point of his death for the glory of God, and for you and me. So he's our example. Shall we pray? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these very, um, these very practical chapters of your word. Um, Father, we pray that you would use them um, to shape our decisions, shape how we behave in, in these many areas where the gospel gives us freedom to choose. Please give us wisdom, we pray, in this area of our lives. Um, Wisdom to be increasingly following the example of our Saviour. And we pray this for your glory and in Jesus' name.